Hey everyone, Gil Gross here, and it is time for another mailbag where I answer your concerns, your questions, your hot takes, and ultimately your comments about tennis and other things. I've posted on the YouTube community tab on the homepage of my channel where you can always get in on the mailbag or you can follow me on Twitter at Gil underscore Gross where I also always try to post as long as I remember prior to the mailbag. So uh, make sure that you're keeping up with that. Apologies for the late upload, okay? Normally I do this on Friday. It is late on Saturday. Um... But Monday Match Analysis will be recorded on Tuesday. A bit of a programming note there. So maybe it works out. Late mailbag, late MMA. Uh, you know, the, the schedule won't be thrown off too bad, all right? Um, okay, I'm going to start with YouTube because I started with Twitter last time. As I said, 7.55 p.m. Let's get it started with a little bit of espresso. You got to. You gotta. It doesn't matter what, what time of day it is. I'm just kidding. It, it definitely does. But um, Conor McGregor fights tonight. Dustin Poirier. So I'm probably going to be up late. All right. First one is from Parth. Parth says, I've seen a lot of unwarranted hate towards Novak after his requests, parentheses, not demands, for the lower ranked players in quarantine. And I definitely think he's so damn underrated in the media compared to Fedal, I mean. What is your take on this? This was, uh, this was interesting. This was a big story. And uh, when, I, when I did my show on the AO quarantine crisis, it was just in, in really the beginning of the mainstream media talking about Novak and I guess the, the PR statement, the, the poor PR that ultimately came his way after his letter to Craig Tiley. I think that there are a few factors here that are going underlooked. One, um, I think it was presumptive to use the word demands. There's a certain connotation to that word. I'm not sure where everyone got that word. And it's true. You know, Craig Tiley said they weren't really demands. They were suggestions. And I do think that that was uh, something that was a little bit unfair. I also think it's very important to know who leaked this. Right, because there's a difference between going public with with something like that and messaging Craig Tiley privately. I do think that that makes a difference. Now, who leaked it? Could it have been Novak himself? It absolutely could have been. All I'm trying to point out is we don't know exactly who leaked that. It wasn't exactly a Novak Djokovic press release. No, it was a letter to Craig Tiley. With that being said, I completely understand why a lot of people took that badly. And I think that if Novak had someone in charge of his public relations, or if he had an agent that he ran, that he, you know, could run something like this by, it would have been fairly predictable that this was not going to be received well in some parts. You go into someone else's country, you play by their rules. You don't tell them, you don't, you don't make, even if it's a suggestion, right? You understand how that could be taken poorly. If it's, okay, thank you. We don't need your suggestions. We kind of know what we're doing, right? Uh, from the perspective of the Australian government, why would they care even a little bit what Novak Djokovic has to say about what the, what the rules should be here, right? It, again, as I said on Monday, the last Monday match analysis on the Australian Open quarantine crisis in depth, check that out if you haven't. As I said at that time, this is so much, this is so above tennis. The, the thought that tennis would change or the fact that the thought that guidelines, health guidelines would bend for tennis is absurd. It's, it's a non-starter. It was always a non-starter. The reason why I didn't jump on the criticism bandwagon for Novak is because I didn't think this mattered much. It wasn't going to do anything. And I see, I see Novak as someone who is almost a, just someone with a very strong, intense bias towards his own bubble, which is the bubble of tennis players. And he's very vocal when it comes to trying to make the best conditions possible for the tennis players. So I just didn't really expect... I didn't I didn't really bat an eye at this and I didn't think it should have been made into that big a deal. But if we want to talk about Federer and Nadal, 
let me be very, very clear. Federer and Nadal do not put themselves in this in these kinds of positions. They don't. Now, you could say that the media is softer on them. They might be, but you know, after something like the Adria Tour, of course they're going to be hard on Novak for something like this, right? It's not necessarily a good thing that Nadal and Federer are completely, I'm going to call them apolitical, but I use the word political rather uh, loosely because I don't mean politics. I just mean Federer and Nadal are diplomatic at every single step of the way. More often than not, if it's controversial, they're keeping their mouth shut. That's it. They're not, they're not saying a word. Controversy, I want none of it. That's, that's Nadal and Federer. It, it does, they don't leave themselves open to this kind of thing. They can't have a misstep because they're not stepping in the first place. They're not stepping. There's not going to be a misstep. So the old saying is live by the sword, die by the sword, right? Novak Djokovic, as vocal as he wants to be about helping the lower ranked players. He can live by that sword and he can get positive PR, which he has for that. But in this case, he had blinders on. He did. He just, he, he didn't think about how that was going to be received. He says, I, I have, I had good intentions. Of course he had good intentions. It just wasn't, a, it just wasn't, it didn't work and it wasn't smart. And I don't, you know, again, was the bashing warranted? Maybe not. I don't think so. Cause if I thought it was warranted, I would have done it. I specifically didn't. Right. So I don't think it was warranted. Was it predictable? Yeah, it, it was predictable. It, that's what's going to happen. It, it was very clear that was that's he left himself open to that. But um, I don't know. You know, there are athletes in history who are famously kind of not towing, kind of towing the line and very unwilling to insert themselves in controversy. And Tiger Woods would be an example. OJ Simpson before the murder was it would be an example of someone who who really prioritized marketability over anything else Michael Jordan was someone who did that I think Federer and Nadal are in that camp some people will appreciate that and put that into the the positive category some people will think that that's a negative some people will, and they're not wrong for this, will prefer Novak Djokovic, who's willing to kind of put himself out there and say how he feels and take some risk, even if he makes some unforced errors in the process. All right, let's move on now. That that um, I wanted to spend some time on that question. Now I'll run through them a little faster. This one from um, 724CCC. Have you ever considered doing a live stream and some casual commentary during a big match? I know I would enjoy it, and I'm sure others would too. I have considered this. Yes, I, I have. And I know that some people in the tennis YouTube community have done this or do this. And yep, I'm interested. Um, so I will think about doing that. And I don't know if Australia is the best to do that uh, with the with the time difference, but maybe. Maybe I'll do it. Um, I'll consider it, yeah. From Andrew, who is the biggest threat to dethrone Djokovic at AO21? Do you think quarantine will noticeably affect performance and fitness for this event? I'm not going to go too in-depth with predictions because I want to save that for, uh, you know, predictions videos. But right now, my thought, before I know how the courts are going to play, and there's a big mystery there because they didn't play in 2020 like they had been playing. They were a lot slower last year. Not knowing how the courts are going to play, I think Dominic Team would be number one there. Uh, someone who's just had a lot of success against Djokovic and whose power has really forced Novak to, to force the issue. Pressured Novak to force the issue on the court. Then I would say Daniil Medvedev who Novak has struggled with, and they've played amazing matches, Djokovic and Medvedev. Then third, I would say Nadal. 
And that's kind of assuming that the courts are going to be kind of slick, kind of low bouncing. That you know that that assumes all that. So that's my feeling for uh, for Australian Open at the moment. But I got to see how the courts are playing. I got to see what the draw looks like, and I need to see how these guys look at ATP Cup, where inevitably I'm going to be drawing some some different conclusions about what I'm seeing at ATP Cup, and that's going to alter my my thoughts on this. But that's where I'm at right now. Oh, the second part of this question. Do you think quarantine will noticeably affect performance and fitness for this event? I'm a little bit worried about the heat. I think especially for the people who are not able. And by the way, it's hurt the women's side. The WTA seemingly has more quarantined players than the ATP because one of those flights was uh, uh, from what? Abu Dhabi? Abu Dhabi, I believe, uh, where there was a WTA event. So um, in general, what I'm more concerned about is for the players who can't go outside the Melbourne heat might be a really big problem. If you're in AC for 14 days and you got to go outside and play in 85, 90 degrees, that's going to be a big problem. So I'm concerned about that. And I'm a little bit concerned about fitness. I'm not so much concerned about timing and serving and the the tennis skills that that these players have. I really don't think that those skills diminish as quickly as 14 days. Or I think you... You get them back pretty quickly. That's what I expect. I will say one more thing on this is um, my concern is for the long-term effects, not the short-term effects. Because a, any player will tell you the off-season is when you prepare your body for the season. And my concern is that the players are going to lose some of their off-season training. And that some of the muscles, some of the muscle that they built is going to atrophy, which does happen rather quickly. It really does. The you know muscular muscles, they don't they don't hang around if you don't exercise them. They really don't. So I'm I'm concerned about the long term effects of uh, the diminishing returns on off season bulking and and fitness. So. But short term, I think the tennis will look fine, is uh, is my answer. From Haider Raha, or Hater, um, has the strict quarantine rules in Australia increased the chances of one of the next-gen guys winning the major tournament because now the majority of the tour might be rusty and hence might not defeat or take too much guys out like Zverev and team in the early rounds giving them a greater chance to challenge Djokovic and Rafa. No, I'm not predicting that at all. I'm predicting that the advantage that is being in Adelaide is going to be, um, I'll say, tangible. I think that's a tangible advantage to be in Adelaide. Um, and I think that their training is probably, what, what it seems like is it's pretty normal. You know, and they get five hours is plenty on the court. And they have lots of room to, to move and they have a gym in the hotel and they're going to, you know, have good exhibition competition against each other. So one, I think Adelaide will be an advantage Two, I think this is a mental challenge. Let's not diminish that. This isn't just physical to not play, to not do anything for 14 days or to not quite train like you normally would. Let's say for the players who are soft quarantining, right? That will take a toll mentally. Where's your belief? Where's your confidence? The belief comes from your hard work that you put in and your training. And I think the veterans on tour will put a little bit less pressure on themselves. They'll be a little bit more comfortable. Um, oh, I'm forgetting the interview. Uh, I'm, it's killing me. But Blair Henley did an interview. Um, Blair, I, I had on this uh, this off season, uh, so about a month ago, and she's great. She did an interview on YouTube um, with a doubles player who basically said, um, I have had a long enough career where I've been in situations where I've gotten sick and I haven't trained and then I've, I've gone out and I've played and I've played well. So there have been numerous times. If you take a veteran on tour, it's not like they have not been in this situation before. They've had to play without training before. And the more experience you have, I think the more belief you have in your abilities 
the better you're going to deal with this out of the ordinary training situation. So I think that is an advantage to the older players. I will give you points here, points to, uh, to your question. It is harder to rev up the engine of an old car. That Jeep uh, Grand Cherokee that you haven't started up in two months, that's from 2006, mm, that one might not start. The new Honda Civic, the 2020, don't start it for two months. It'll be fine. The new engine, easier to reboot than the old engine. That's true for athletes too. Everyone says that. I think Derek Jeter said that uh, when, when, when he got old about his body. So there is something to be said for that. Bonus question. Let's go retro. If Sampras and Agassi played on today's courts, do you think Agassi would have had the overall head-to-head advantage over Sampras? Hmm. I'm a big believer that if Sampras played on these courts, he would have adjusted his game and played a little bit differently. With that being said, no. <laughs> no. I think Sampras would have adjusted, and I, I do think that Pete Pete was a, he was such a clutch player. He was more clutch than Andre, and I, I think that translates uh, through different play styles. Uh, can Tsitsipas win a Masters title this year? Yes, I, I expect him to. Uh, that one was from ZVRK. This one from Almino. Do you think we're expecting too much from Sinner? For him to make the top 10 this year, he would have to have a Rublev-like season or a Grand Slam win. I hope he does, but not sure. I don't think he needs that. Now, it, yeah, it does depend how many rankings points are protected. I understand what you're saying, but... Um, I don't know. A year is a long time. Uh, he's got, uh, I expect him, I don't really, I, I don't expect him to win a Grand Slam. Um, but, you know, I, I think he does have a, a Rublev-like season. I think it's very likely that, that he can have a Rublev-like season. Um, I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. I don't think he'll win. I mean, Rublev won five titles in 12 tournaments. Center's not going to really do that. I don't think you can expect that out of anyone. But, Look, I think he's special, and man, uh, I think he's going to catch fire, you know? Maybe, though. We might be expecting too much from center. It's very possible. Very possible. A Mugs Game asked, who has the prettiest one-handed backhand you have ever seen? Not, ne not necessarily the best or most effective, but just the, beautiful, the most beautiful one-hander to watch. I'd probably give that to Gaz K. I don't know, uh... Gaz K, I love, it's all about the finish pretty much. And Gaz K, his finish, um, something about it, something about it. I don't know if that's a hot take, if people would agree with that, if people think I'm crazy there, but uh, I think it's a, a unique looking one-handed backhand. It has a quite, quite the elegance. Definitely not Vavrinka, definitely not Team, definitely not Tsitsipas. Uh, yeah, I'd take Gaz K's over those. I think Fetters is pretty as well, but give me Gaz K. How do you assess Hubie Hercotch's chances at the Australian Open? Uh, also, who is your dark horse for the whole tournament? I wasn't very impressed with Hercotch's uh, Delray title. Um, if you want detailed analysis on that, check out the last Monday match analysis, and I get to it at the end. Who is your dark horse for the whole tournament? Probably Hugo Umber. Now, there's a lot of hype around him, and I, I know I hyped him and Davidovich Fakina. Davidovich Fakina got COVID, and, and he pulled out of the Aussie, so he won't play. So I guess I'll go with her, uh, not her coach. I guess I'll go with uh, Umber. Again, I got to see the draw. Uh, this guy, I think, has been asking me like every week um, Nubo Nubich. Can you explain the main difference between the one-handed backhand and the two-handed backhand? What is better and what backhand do you play? Well, first of all, I, I, I feel like, a, sorry to be a corporate machine here and continuously plug old content, but um, go to three, my show with Joel Drucker, Amy Lundy, and we talk about the backhands, Federer's backhand, Nadal's backhand, Djokovic's backhand. And we talk about one-hander versus two-hander in depth. But 
My short answer for you right now, um, I play with the two-handed to answer that question. One-handers are better for variety. Generally, you have a better slice. You have a better backhand volley. You have sometimes better feel on the side. Uh, it's better for reach, which uh, sometimes players like on on defense, but really the two-hander has usually more stability on defense. Uh, but a lot of players who like to go to the net think it's easier to approach the net with a one-handed backhand for, for whatever reason. Two-handers, um, the ability to hit open stance is much, much, much better, which is why it's more stable defensively. The return is generally a lot easier because the take back is generally not as exaggerated and um, the racket head has a little bit more easy plow through because you're in kind of a stronger, um, you don't have to rely as much on acceleration. The, the left arm really, uh, I would say, provides a little bit more stability. And I'll, lastly, I'll say the biggest backhands on tour, save Yannick Sinner, they are one-handers. So I think you do have the ability to hit a little bit bigger with a one-hander. They're also uh, normally a little bit harder to master, a little bit harder to square up the ball, less consistent. Um... I see a question about Murray and other players that have tested positive for the virus and that they should still play Australia and arrive at a later date. Clearly, it, it can't happen. I, my understanding is that they've done everything they can there, and it's just not um, its just not workable. This one from Leo. Who of the younger guys are best on grass? Who may be a threat slash underdog in this year's Wimbledon? I've answered this a bunch of times. I do think it's Daniil Medvedev. He's got the serve. He's got the flatter strokes. He loves the low bounce. Um, he just needs to figure out how to move on the surface. And, you know, I, I also think the younger guys kind of get a bad rap for their grass court play because there was no grass court season last year. That is a whole year of development that they are robbed of. So we're talking about these guys in 2019. You can go ahead and say that Daniil Medvedev was not, you know, I think he he exited in the second round in, in Wimbledon. You can go ahead and say that he hasn't done anything on grass. Well, guess what? He wasn't as good a player back then. Not even close. So it, it's kind of hard to say. Peak team versus peak Vavrinka. That's another one. I say peak team. He moves better. Here's one from Raul. Hi, Gil. Do you think Federer will play the clay court season this year? It seems kind of odd to play Dubai and Miami and then take another three months off. He would be very rusty on the grass. What do you think? I think Federer needs to listen to whatever his knee is telling him, obviously. But my short, excuse me, um, my short answer is I, I really think that playing the clay court season helped him in 2019. And I think he should seriously consider if he feels up for it. I think you should consider doing it again. Hold on, guys. All right. Here's another comment asking about Hercotch. Yeah, again, he didn't beat a top 100 opponent. You know, I think he's, uh, again, I think he's a solid player. No Hercotch slander here. I think he's very good. I think he belongs in the top 30. He just entered the top 30. I think he's going to stay there for years and years and years to come. He's a good player. But uh, he's not going to threaten the top guys right now. I, I just really don't see that at all. I don't see it. Um, better chance of winning the Australian Open or Wimbledon 2021 for Novak. Probably Wimbledon, and I know the Australian Open is his spot. He's never lost a final there. Um, but I do think that just the, the list of threats, it's a lot bigger in Australia. And when you look at Dominic Team and the threat that he is, you definitely, you would, you would fancy Djokovic more, I think, 
um, at Wimbledon just because he would have a, uh, on the surface, right, it would appear that he would have a much easier time dealing with Dominic Team on grass. Here's another one about the young guys in grass. Yeah, I just want to I just want to reiterate, you know, don't underestimate the it, we're taking their 2019 results and we're judging them at the start of 21 at 2021 based on their 2019 grass results. I mean, let's let's be careful with that. From SJ, how would you anticipate a French Open final between 2020 Nadal and 2008 Nadal to go? Such a good question. It's so it's so hard, and uh, my general feelings is that 2008 Nadal would win. It, it's it's hard to say, but based on the eye test, I kind of I'm I'm under the. Here's my sense. I think both Federer and Nadal and Djokovic. Well, actually not Federer, um, but I think Nadal was better in the 2000s. Um, and I think Federer was better in the early 2000s than he was in 2017. And just because they are still the best does not mean they are better than they were. It's, but it's so hard. And I think, I think 2008 Nadal has a lot of similar, I think his abilities are similar to what 2020 Nadal can do. It's just he doesn't need to rely on certain things as much. Uh, it's not like 2008 Nadal doesn't have first strike tennis. You know, he does. He just kind of chooses not to use it because he's got other stuff that he knows that that he can rely on. So I, I, I favor 2008. Just as a thought exercise, who do you think would win a Grand Slam played on a surface that has grass service boxes Clay from the baseline to the start of the service box and hard courts behind the baseline. That's wild, man. That's wild. How many drugs did you do? Um, I would say the biggest factor here would be the grass in the service box. That would be a big deal. So if we're looking at the big three, who would like that the most? I'd say Federer because he's got... You know, he can he can lean on his serve. The third one, thoughts on Q's basketball season. Are they finally going to be NCAA tournament material this year? Man, this is what the mailbag is all about. This is what it's about. Yeah, I say tennis or anything else. You know, you, you ask, I answer. Unless it's politics, in which case I probably won't answer. Um, throw, throw anything at me here. I do think that they're going to make the NCAA tournament. I think that it's a deeper Syracuse team, about seven players deep, and that's a really good thing. If Sidibe comes back and he can provide some stability with uh, rebounding and interior defense, man, uh, I think it's a dangerous team, especially if Kadari Richmond uh, gets a little bit more comfortable. And uh, I think Buddy Beheim and Joe Girard, who haven't shot the ball well at all for the most part this season are due to kind of um, start shooting better, which is good. COVID's been tough on them. All right, we're about to head over to Twitter. We're actually going to head over to Twitter now. All right, the Twitter people came to play again. I'm loving the Twitter people. Uh, the Twitter people are great. First one from Abby. You have to win one slam. You have to add one slam win to a player that lost in the final of a slam. To whom and which slam do you add? That's pretty easy for me. Uh, Ferrer beats Nadal in the 2014 French Open final. Easy one for me. How can future events prepare for slash learn from the COVID situation in Australia? That one from Brandon Daniels. Check out uh, Brandon's stuff. He he writes for uh, Lob and Smash. So you can check out his writing. Good stuff from uh, Brandon. And a very good question. Here's the thing. Um, you got to be transparent with the players. You have to be. Or you're going to have 
angry players. You're gonna have you're gonna have people who are gonna be upset. And that would be a complete 180 for what tournaments normally do. Normally, the effort for the tournaments is to get the players to come, sell your tournament. Normally, you're a sales. You know, you're the tournament is in a position of trying to sell the players so that they enter in the tournament, so that they can market the best field of play possible. That needs to change. You you have to say, look, this is the situation here which Australia clearly didn't spell out, this is the risk. This is exactly what could happen. This is the worst thing that could happen. This is the best thing that could happen. But the but this is the situation. And Australia just needed to do a better job with that. And maybe some players would have said, okay, then I'm not coming. That's better than the PRS storm that has rained down on the Australian Open here. From New Day, do you think Federer decided to pull out of the uh, Aussie Open to avoid the pressure of being ex expected to miraculously pull a 2017 repeat? Was it a wise decision given how that surface suits his game better than most these days? You got to give him the benefit of the doubt. If his knee isn't ready, his knee isn't ready. And uh, I don't think that he pulled out because he didn't want the expectations of 2017 on his shoulders. I think that I think that his knee recovery has uh, dragged. And also, I don't think Federer would have expected that of himself. And I think everyone kind of understands that that was a complete aberration. And I don't think that if Federer had played in Australia, I don't think there would have been a lot of pressure on him. He wouldn't have been really in the top three. Maybe he would have been the fourth favorite to win this thing. When I'm talking about the odds makers, then for someone like me, who's actually supposed to predict the, the results, I don't think he'd be fourth. I think he'd be probably fifth or sixth in the uh, favorites list. Here's one from Agarius. Two great rivals, Novak and Rafa. So many people call this the ultimate battle or match to watch. Yet on hard courts, Novak is on a huge winning streak and has won something like 22 consecutive sets against Nadal. I would like your thoughts on this because it baffles me. It kind of baffles me too. And I don't think that that trend, as long as, long as knock on wood, that they, they play a couple more times in the near future, I don't think that trend will continue. With that being said, there is clearly a tactical advantage that Djokovic has in the neutral cross-court rallies against Nadal, and also an advantage that he takes away Nadal's best serve. And, you know, there's just too many matches on, on a hard court, and this changes on clay. There are too many matches where... Not only is is Novak serving and returning a little bit better than Nadal, which is key on a faster court, a quicker surface, but Rafa can't find the edge in either of the cross-court patterns from the baseline. So, you know, Nadal, if, if you design, if you want to design a player to beat Nadal, you give them a great two-handed backhand that they are, that... They like to take on the rise. <laughs> That's it. They take it on the rise, and it's solid. That's how you. That's how you design a player to beat Nadal. A player who doesn't mind hitting a backhand up high, which Novak does so so well. It's a bad matchup on a hard court, no doubt. From Mason, biggest tactical mismatch on the ATP Tour, and what can the player at a disadvantage in the mismatch do to change the matchup around? Hmm. Um, a couple come to mind. I, I guess... Um, I guess Medvedev against Rublev would be one that comes to mind. And it's because Andre Rublev tries to take enough time away to rush his opponents, and Daniil Medvedev is unrushable. And the harder you hit the ball against Daniil Medvedev, the happier he is to redirect your pace. And all Andre Rublev really likes to do is slug the ball as hard as he can. So uh, how would he change that matchup around? I think Andre, with the weapons that he has, needs to uh, play up the middle a little bit more needs to take some pace off and be um, he needs to really fight his urge 
to hit with as much pace as he possibly can on every ball. And then he needs to focus on hitting sharper angles instead of hitting the ball harder, which is something that a lot of players have have a hard time adjusting to. I think it's it's quite unnatural for certain players. A player like Del Potro is gonna is gonna struggle to do something like that as well. So for certain players who are used to really beating their opponents for pace, a player like Daniil Medvedev is uh, is a big problem for them. Or you know, I think Djokovic and Zverev are also kind of in that camp a little bit. Hard to rush those guys. Very difficult to rush those guys. Predictions for the 2021 season of Hugo Umber. This one from Next Gen Tennisstan. Uh, Hugo Umber, big things. I, I'm I'm a big fan. Moves really well for his size and for his weaponry because he's got a good lefty serve that will attack the righty backhand return very effectively, which is a, a great tool to have. Good slice serve. It, it cuts hard. And he's got a very damaging forehand. He's not afraid to come forward, use his length. He's quite imposing at the net. And he's got a backhand. His backhand has limitations. Doesn't have a lot of spin. All of his winners will go down the line. He won't really hit a, a, a cross-court backhand winner because he just it's too flat and he doesn't really like it. With that being said, he's very good at redirecting his backhand down the line, even if it's not for offense, even if he's just changing the pattern, which uh, sets up his forehand, which is a very nice thing that Hugo Umber is able to do. Should full quarantined players skip warm-up events and just train for Australian Open? Underrated players to watch for the upcoming season. I did underrated um, on the last mailbag. Should they skip the events and just train? Uh, hard to say. You know, I'm going to take a pass on that one. I'm not really sure what they should do there. Uh, it's a good question. What singular change would most improve the ATP Cup? It should not be based on top players. And I know that's hard, you know, uh, you wouldn't want to see like a country like Austria, they would make it right with Dennis Novak, um, a country like Greece, I don't know who, uh, who's after Tsitsipas, you wouldn't want to see a star like Stefano Tsitsipas not be in the competition, but I don't know what else to do there, right? Because if, if your singles lineup is two players, then qualification should be on both players. Shouldn't just be the top player. It doesn't make any sense to me, right? If you're if you're going to reward players for making the ATP Cup, at least factor in their ranking. You know, at least if you know if if you have the number, let's say you're Djokovic and it's it's not Krajinovic, is it? Um, is it Kachmanovic? I know it's not Krajinovic. I think it's Kachmanovic then. If, if you're Miomir Kachmanovic, do you deserve to be in the ATP Cup? Maybe not. Maybe not. But at least your ranking was factored into the equation there. Instead of how it is now where just the top player decides who qualifies. Now, I would like to know if players would still play if you remove the rankings points. Because I don't really think the rankings points stuff is fair at all. I don't think there should be rankings points. I don't think the competition is is fair enough to award rankings points. But if it's going to destroy the entire event, and as a result, nobody's going to play, mm, I don't know. Then that's kind of what we saw start to uh, saw start to happen with Davis Cup. It kind of ruined the event. So you can't have that. So I'm not really sure. But definitely factor in the top two singles players. That is how a country qualifies, not just the top player. Why is tennis media so soft on tennis organizations and the players? That's from Flavio. You got to be more specific. Ask me again and, and be specific. Yeah, I'm not sure what you mean. Uh, from Sedant, how significant an advantage do you think the top players practicing in Adelaide will gain over those currently quarantined in Melbourne? A legitimate advantage, but at the same time, they are the best players. So... If they win, don't say oh, it's because they. It must be that Adelaide. What you know, the 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 air in Adelaide is the secret ingredient. No, I mean, 
It's hard to tell with these things because they are the best players. So if they win, well, they probably would have won anyway. This one from Vita. How much untapped potential do you think there is in Nadal's serve? Do you think if it were unlocked, it could mean multiple additional big titles? Also, when Nadal is asked if he improved, he says he's the same except the serve and only his tactics are aggressive. Why and do you agree? Yeah, I do agree. I said that earlier, right? He always had these tools. It's just tactics. It's just decisions. It's just the deployment of the uh, of the weapons. Unta untapped potential in Nadal's serve. Not that much. Not that much. He He's trying. I mean, he's he's worked on it for a really, really long time. To say that there is a ton of untapped potential, I think, would be a little bit naive. I think that'd be crazy. However, do I think that he has... Do I think that the best serving of his career is ahead of him, in front of him? I do. I do believe that. And I think it could mean multiple additional big titles if he maintains the other stuff, right? So it's all timing. Let's move on to a figure skating emoji who says, Hi Gil, from the players on 24-hour quarantine, tennis-wise, will the older or the younger players be more affected? I would think the older players have an advantage with experience mentally, but the younger ones could physically recover faster. Bingo. I mentioned it earlier, so glad, uh, glad we're on the same page there. What would it take for Shapovalov to be a consistent force in tennis from Srihari? Let me keep this one simple. You got to put more balls in the court. Very, very simple there. You, you can't, you can't give that many gifts. What? Who's the last Grand Slam champion who was erratic and made a lot of unforced errors from the baseline? It's been a while, right? You can't win like that anymore. Who wins like that? On the men's side, at least. You really, you really just. If you look at Stan Wawrinka and the three titles he won with brilliant, heavy, aggressive shot making from behind the baseline, that's Shapovalov, right? There he is. There's your blueprint. But Stan wasn't making errors. He wasn't. So that's the blueprint. He's got to get to a place where his baseline game is more consistent and he can play in longer rallies because the best defensive players in the game will eat him up. Can Sinner win a Masters title this year? I believe he can from Shavam. I got to run through these because uh, I got to go. But Alonzo, who will be the first to win all four Grand Slams at least two times between the big three? Who will be the first? I don't really think anyone's going to do it. Sorry. It's interesting. You know, I don't see a French Open really in, in Novak's future. I don't necessarily see an Aussie in Nadal's future. So I don't think it happens. Uh, Bhuvnesh says, who is the best forehand, the best backhand, the best serve, and the best volley in the next gen, age 25 or less? Best forehand is Stefano Tsitsipas. Best backhand tough. Uh, Yannick Sinner. Sorry. Yannick Sinner. I know he hasn't accomplished as much as Medvedev and Zverev, but I'll take his backhand. Best serve. Hmm. Zverev over Medvedev. No. No. I take that back completely. You got to factor in the second serve there. I was only thinking about the big bombs. Medvedev. Yeah. Opelka, if we're being honest. Riley Opelka. To that question. Best volley in the next gen. That's a good question. That is a good question. Might be Tsitsipas. It might be Demonor. Does that sound crazy to you guys? It might be Demonor. The best volley in the next gen. He can volley. Novak fan England. What is the point of the ATP Players Council when they don't seem to help or speak out for the players. There's very little argument you can make and say the ATP Players Council has a lot of bargaining power. Clearly they don't. Clearly they don't affect much change at all. So uh, I don't think there's much point, you know, at all. 
And that doesn't mean that they're doing damage. Doesn't mean that they're the worst thing in the world. But clearly, it's uh, clearly they're not very influential. Uh, what's the most underused shot or tactic in the men's game right now? Probably coming in off the second serve return. It's probably the most underused shot or tactic. I think that that can make uh, a second serve. I think that can make a server very uncomfortable, and I I rarely see it. Rarely see it. Thoughts on Kasparud, Hugo Umber, Sebi Korda. I see at least two of these as being top ten players by 2023, and ultimately having better careers than Chapo and FAA. Agree slash disagree. That tweet is from. Um, Scriabina. Kasparud, he's got a really great forehand. He's got good movement. That's going to take him a long way. Uh, his backhand is not great. It's going to hurt him on fast courts when players can get to his backhand. Um, out of those three, I'm by far the highest on Umber. I think I think he's the best out of that, out of that bunch. And I know that um, we have one from Tennis Blogger. Cracked Rackets contributor um, asking, what ceiling do you put on Corda's game? So let me take this chance to talk about Sebi Corda's game a little bit. Right now, I I see, I think he has major potential because I love his racket talent. I think he hits the ball so clean and I like the backhand a lot. But there, something pretty drastic needs to happen in his development for him to become a top 15 player. In my, in my opinion. One of two things. He either needs to become a better mover. He needs to get a little bit quicker around the court and become more athletic. Or he needs to start serving better. He reminds me a little bit of Taylor Fritz in that respect. A young Taylor Fritz. He's got a solid foundation off the ground. Very solid. On both the forehand wing and the backhand wing. He's got easy power. He's relatively consistent. Um... But at his height, he's about six foot five. If you're not going to serve very big, which he's not right now, and you're not going to move very well, which he's not right now, he's moving fine, okay, fine, but not great. That's a pretty tough combination to overcome there. You either need to be a little bit more offensive. Or you need to be a little bit more athletic to make up for that. That way you can play a little bit better out of neutral situations and defensive situations. Does that make sense? So either the serve gets bigger or the movement gets a little better. It's got to be one or the other. If that hurdle can be overcome, if that development can be made, then I'm very high on Korda because I think he's got a solid foundation. I just think one of those things needs to happen first. Oliver Whalen says, could you talk a little bit more about Massetti, what you've seen and expect from him? Looking at his tennis before and after the pandemic, I've seen incredible development, and I think he has all of the tools to be a future number one. I'm not there on Musetti yet, and there's a lot of uh, what I'd say incomplete. There's a lot, There's a lot of questions that I have about his game, and when I say questions, I don't mean... I don't mean that in a, in a negative way like it sounds. I mean, literally, I'm not sure yet. What I'll say right now is that clearly he has unbelievable timing, which gives him a real flair for shot making, especially from the baseline. And he's heavy off both wings when he has time to load up. But I want to know more about his serve, his return, and his defense. That's what I that's what I want to know more about. I also want to know uh, more about his stroke mechanics and how they're going to work on quicker courts. Because on clay, when he has when he had all the time in the world, he looked unbelievable. But when the when the courts get fast, and he doesn't have quite as much time to get off his his long one handed backhand, which has a a, a really a really um, travels a lot of distance from the take back to the follow through. Um, and he's got the, the big take back on the forehand with the full Western grip. Uh, let's see what he does on faster surfaces as well. 
All right, we will end on this from Ali Patton. The ATP Cup and the Davis Cup Finals should merge under the latter's name. I just don't see the point in having two very similar tournaments within a couple months of each other uh, in a non-pandemic year. What are your thoughts? This got seven likes, which means people agree. And I'm, I'm in agreement with you. I am in agreement with you. Team events need to be special. They just do. We've seen that work with the World Cup, which is every four years. We've seen that work with the Olympics, which is every two years. And for tennis, for it to be yearly, okay, that's fine. And I was a big fan of the Davis Cup. But the fact that it wasn't at a neutral site, the fact that it was in different locations, didn't that keep Davis Cup fresh? Didn't it keep it fresh? So now we're going to have two team events and they're going to be at neutral sites? Is that going to get old? Is that going to be, is that going to reek of oversaturation? I think it will. I think it will. Would I love them to merge? Yes. And ultimately, the only thing that will decide this is the free market. I, I mean that when I say it, because if if the money doesn't force the powers that be into a change there, nothing's going to change. So let's see what happens. Let's monitor it. I will say this. If you're going to give it the benefit of the doubt, the new Davis Cup format is brand new. The ATP Cup is brand new, so let's give it a chance. Let's see how it goes, and we can see how we feel about it. But an astute observation, and we'll continue to monitor it. Monitor it. All right. That'll do it for Monday Match Analysis. Remember, this was not Monday Match Analysis. This was a mailbag. That'll do it for this mailbag. Remember, Monday Match Analysis will drop on Tuesday. Can't wait to see you there. Uh, subscribe on YouTube, leave a comment, like the video, podcast platforms, I'm on them, leave a rating, leave a review on Apple, I appreciate it, hope you enjoyed, don't forget to subscribe, and I will see you next time. Our house is a mess, come on in. I'm Amber Wallen, internet comedian, plant queen, and host of your new favorite podcast, Fly on the Wild. Okay, that's pretty <laughs> presumptuous to assume that this is going to be their favorite podcast, by the way. Like, come on, Amber. Anyway, that wasp that you just heard interrupt me is my husband. And co-host, Benjamin Wallen, also a comedian, and I host people at our home. I have a great wine collection in my cellar. Well, you it's mean not a cellar. the mini-fridge. It's a mini-fridge. It's a mini-fridge. Yeah. New episodes of Fly on the Wallen drop every Wednesday. Listen in as we discuss relationships, books, and keeping our sweet baby kid alive while we make laughs on the internet. Subscribe to Fly on the Wallen wherever you get your podcasts. Yes.